0: Hello and welcome to this episode of Unpeeled Press. I'm Peter Kenyon and I explore our vibrant and diverse food culture in North East Victoria and the issues that influence it. Today I'm talking with one of our neighbours about his family's orchard history and their experience producing fruit here on the outskirts of Beechworth. Rob Tully is a fifth generation fruit grower and before he moved here as a boy with his family, the Tully's original orchards were in Doncaster, on land that's now deep within Melbourne suburbia. Rob has seen the fruit industry change in terms of location, scale, technologies, and opportunities. He brings a thoughtful intelligence and insight to the production of apples and pears, commonplace fruits that most of us simply take for granted. Let's dive straight in. Hello, Rob. Great. Thanks for letting me interview you today and talk about apples. Uh, The Tullies are very important in the region in terms of apple growing. They're a very key part of the history of apple growing in the Beechworth and Stanley region. How long have the Tullies been growing apples?
1: Uh, We're not so big in this area, but we um, were about three generations in the Melbourne metropolitan area, always in apples and, and other fruits. And when that got built out in... It started to develop into housing area in the uh, mid-50s, 1950s. My father decided to leave that part of the family operation and move up to Beechworth, uh, which in the fullness of time, he never regretted. Um, mm. He always thought it was a really good move um, to move up here. But yeah, I'm about the fifth generation uh, fruit grower. Mm. Um, and two generations up in the Beechworth area. Mm.
0: And when did you arrive
1: in Beechworth? Uh, Mid fifties, 1955. So you remember that coming here? I do, mm. yep. Yep, the old truck that brought us here is still parked on the property. Yeah, i got strong memories of, be the long one of the longest trips that truck ever did, I'd say, but carting us and um, the family chattels up from Doncaster in Melbourne mm. up to here.
0: Mm. Was there an apple orchard here at the time?
1: There was. Um, This orchard was planted in 1914, and it was run by the Christensen family, which are well known in this area.
0: So you bought some of their land?
1: Yes. Mm. They actually relocated out of the area for a short period of time, and then moved back in, and moved back into fruit growing Mm. um, also. Mm.
0: And so did you continue growing the apples? that they were already growing or did you plant more or did you plant different types of apples?
1: My father didn't plant much of the orchard, in fact his time here was relatively short. Uh, I suppose um, he was running it without my input for only about 16 years. Mm. It was uh, mainly apples with a few pears and a new, uh, something my father didn't know about, this place was growing a lot of cherries too. So. Dad relied on the guys that were working the orchard prior to him coming up here to show him how to go about growing the cherries.
0: Because you didn't grow those in Melbourne.
1: We didn't grow those in Melbourne. Mm. Cherries were only grown in a few areas and it wasn't as popular as it is now.
0: So what do you what grows here now in on your orchard?
1: On our orchard, because of my age and the fact that my children are not that keen on taking on uh, this place as an orchard. I've pushed all of the apple trees out and we've got a small patch of pear trees now. Bosch, which is a russet-skinned pear, very old pa- pear, and one of the new varieties called Corella, mm. which is a, a bi pear. And when did you push the apple trees out? Uh, 2015, I think it was, or 2016. Mm. So the last year that we had apples here was a very big year. It was. It wasn't a case of the place running down slowly. It was a place. It was a case of the place going from full production virtually to no production. Mm. Uh, it was a fairly drastic decision. Was it a hard decision? Uh, not for me. It, my children were more upset about it than me. But given that. I'd planted all the trees. Um, there, were, there was none of the original orchard left, or any of the orchard that I inherited from my father. It was all, it was all orchard that I'd um, developed in my time here, and it was purely a business decision. And, and um, no, I didn't. I didn't really didn't lose much sleep over it at all. Yeah. You're
0: a very rational man. Well, and that's not that's a, that's a good thing because uh, there's often a lot of. I think emotion, and, and, I, and I, I know I've said it before in my podcast, I'm a real romantic about orchards and about apple growing yeah, and what it represents.
1: That's true. In, in my time here, I was probably what you would say nowadays was politically active in the fruit growing industry. Um, and I went to a lot of field days, a lot of conferences and was part of that part of the the industry. And at one of those conferences in Tasmania, which is regarded as the apple eye for Australia, uh, I remember one of the old family growing fruit growers coming up to me during quiet time at the conference, at the business end of it, and we got talking about it. And um, he gave me a bit of good advice then, and that was, was, uh, Robert, don't get emotionally involved with your assets, he said. Their family actually departed from fruit growing there for a period of time and went into hardware. They bought a hardware shop in Hobart or um, Devonport or wherever they were. And they stayed with that until the industry picked up again. And then they bought back into the fruit growing game again. So it was good adv- it's was it been good advice. I've always remember- remembered that.
0: So you've got a hardware now. Is that what you're saying? You're going to get back into apple growing the next few years.
1: I wish I did have.
0: <laughs> I remember you telling me that story before. Yeah. So, so all that you've got left now is the block of pears. How yeah. many trees are in that?
1: Six hundred trees. Mm. And
0: 600. that gives you a crop, a commercial crop that you can oh, that you not sell. Not really.
1: Mm. Uh, there's a, a little bit of machinery that we've um, kept back um, there, and it allows allows me to run the machinery and um, use it for what it was designed for. It's, a, it's, it's more of a weekend hobby now, I suppose you would say, for me. Although it's a fairly big hobby, I, I pruned all of the trees myself this mm. past winter and I haven't worked like that on an orchard since the mid-1970s. It was always a case of having to have people do that work for me. So it was, uh, it was an enjoyable exercise, I've got to say that. Was it, is it a big crop this year? It is a big crop. Yeah. And what are you going to do with the fruit? Well, I'm not sure because it's difficult for us to get pickers now. So I might be approaching Peter and Jamie yeah, to see if they're interested in a bit of uh, pear picking. Uh,
0: Peter Shamron mentioned the Boswell apple uh, as a local apple. And I wonder, given the apples propensity to develop local varieties where, wherever they're grown, do you know if that's the only local apple? Have you, are you? I'm not familiar
1: with Boswell at all. Um, it, it was an... What I can say is, though, uh, I'm sure it was never grown in large quantities around the Beechworth-Stanley area. It'll have been a selection that one of the Stanley growers has picked up in in the course of many years and probably propagated it himself up at Stanley. But it was never commercially grown. Mm. Stanley, however, has had one apple that's a staple for this area. Uh, back at the time that we were selling a lot of fruit overseas and just prior to England joining the common market and that was called the king coal and it was all orchards grew king coal we had a lot of king coal growing here I can remember picking over a thousand bins of king Mm -hmm. coal very widely produced really good apple for this area wasn't popular in Australia because it had a it had a unique flavour. It was a really tart apple, but it was an apple that cooked up really well. So it had a beautiful flavour when it was cooked. I would say it was superior to Granny Smith as far as a cooking, a cooking apple would go. Um, mm. But that's my, only my, uh, my personal um, views. And
0: I, I keep hearing about the King Cole and it strikes me that really that is, if, if, if that is the apple that's been adopted locally. As the as the our yes. local apple, it would be nice to get that growing again, so that people were familiar with it.
1: Uh, it would be that uh, a lot of stuff was sold on farms to um, um, locals in the wider area. Mm. It wasn't hugely popular even with the locals, but you'd get odd people who understood the taste and how to how to prepare it and how to cook it who would come in time time and time again asking just for king cold. Mm, mm. Not an easy apple to handle, it bruised very easily. Mm. So that was interesting that it was uh, so popular as an export apple because mm. export fruit in general, you'd be looking for something that travels fairly easily. And this apple wouldn't have been one that travelled fairly easily. However, back in those days when um, fruit was being sold, there wasn't the same concern about the cosmetic appearance of fruit at at its destination
0: as there is now
1: yeah mm. but the the Scandinavian countries used to really like um, king cole because they've got a taste for something a bit bitter a bit sure. a little bit sour mm. yeah and it was an Australian bread apple, which I guess is the key point, yes, one of the key points mm. but nineteen twelve at lang lang is that done in Lang down in South Gippsland somewhere. Yeah, really easy apple to grow. And really prolific on the tree. Yep. Cropped heavily every year. Didn't mm. no, didn't require much um, spray at all to grow it well. Mm. Little bugs that became a real problem for us called two spotted mite. They never worried King Cole. I don't know what it was about the leaves that two spotted mite might suck the juice out of the leaves. Mm. They didn't like to, they didn't like King Cole leaves though. So mm. Yeah, mm. yeah, really easy apple to grow. We would, we would pick King Cole when, um, when the background colour started to turn from green to yellow um, and the red's not fully developed. Um, and if you left it on the, the longer you would leave it on the tree, the better the colour development, the red colour development on the fruit. That applies to a lot of varieties. But with King Cole, they'd also develop a lot of natural wax on the skin too. And it gave the fruit a real shine so that you would look at some trees there late in the season, if they hadn't been picked, and the overall picture of the tree with these shiny red apples on is just like a colouring book, really. They, were, they looked tremendous. And when you had a whole orchard like that, and I'm thinking of Fartosinski's orchard out there, they used to grow a lot of King Cole, and you'd drive past and the orchard would slope away from you. It was you nearly run off the road looking at the mm. because of the just the mass of... Red, magic, magic. Red, yeah. red colour, yeah.
0: Would that, would that wax of... Uh, that natural oily wax, would that have helped with the export so they didn't need to have as no, natural.
1: No, that was... It was probably such that it would give the inspector cause to have a close look and see what the maturity of the fruit was looking like because it's probably past the best stage of maturity for exporting by the time it gets that waxiness about it.
0: But exporting apples, I understand, they're picked earlier, so they're picked before they're optimally flavoured to to cater to the export market.
1: Yes, yep, yep. That applies to a lot of varieties. Uh, In particular, it applied very much to Granny Smiths. We we would pick Granny Smiths for export a long time before we'd pick them for the domestic Mm. market. Mm. In my opinion, they were... They were too immature, for, for even for exporting. Hmm. Yeah, they'd, um, they'd have a white lenticel on them that um, would disappear as they got more mature.
0: A white what?
1: A, a lenticel. It's quite an attractive little spot on the apple, on the skin of the apple. Oh yes, yeah. And that would disappear as it got a little bit more mature. And we'd be picking um, Granny, Granny Smiths for export. Um, before we'd be picking some of the earliest red apples for the for the market, and Granny Smith was always the last apple that you would pick. But for export, you could pick it really early. But it was it was not doing the variety a, a good service by doing that. I think
0: mm. Richard uh, showed me a, a way of determining apple for picking where you cut the apple in half and you put it into some purple kind of ink and stamped it and it would demonstrate how much of the apple was sugar and how much was starch is that how you did it or was there another way of determining the ripeness of the apple
1: scientifically we do that Um, you it's an iodine solution that you uh, make up and you dip it in and it'll tell you at what stage the starches are at in reference to the sugars that develop the starch reacts with the iodine and causes a black pigmentation on the apple As the sugars develop, you don't get that black pigmentation and you can tell straight away what maturity is.
0: And is that how you would do it in addition to sort of pulling one off and tasting it?
1: Well, no, the taste test was always pretty hard to beat, I thought. Mm. Um, So long as you understood what you were aiming at, whether you wanted it for long-term storage or for short-term storage, a quick-selling variety. You know, a lot of ins and outs on what you do with your fruit when you pick it and what time you pick it and what what market you're aiming for the old timers test for what stage the sugar development was was also cut the apple i'd do it with pears quite a lot i still do it with pears i cut the apple in or the pear in half and you pull them apart and then you, you reattach them push them both together again and you hold the stem up and if the bottom part sticks to the top part you've got enough sugar development there to be entitled to pick the fruit if it drops away straight away, mm. it's you've just, got to wait a bit longer. Be, it's just a bit of clay, it's just it's, a brick. It's the sugar that causes the two halves to stick together. Mm. So, if you haven't got any sugar there, they won't stick together. Mm. And when you push them, and you can get a you can also get uh, another indication when you push the two halves together, if the maturity's developing quite well, you, you can see a little bit of juice come out where that where you've cut the cut the two if it's still dry when you push them together again you haven't it's not quite mature enough mm. but you'll find it easy to I find it easier to do with the pears and I, and as I say I still do it with the pears mm. I carry a knife around with me all the time so I'll cut the pear in half and plug them together and then <laughs> well there's a the, there's a lot of wastage in like that mm. there's a lot of apples with what just one bite taken out of them and then thrown away
0: Rob is it fair to, to say that most people haven't tasted a really good apple or a really good pear? E- even people in this in this fruit growing district, yep. let, let alone people living in metropolitan areas.
1: Probably in the fruit growing district, they would. Because the guys that are selling them at the farmer's market or at the road, roadside or at the shed sales, this sort of thing, they understand their product pretty well and they'll, they'll perhaps be um, keeping a li- little, a bit of stuff that's late picked, that's put up for sale, that's at its prime eating condition. For someone in the city it's unusual for them to be able to access fruit as such in that sort of condition. Mm. It's nearly always going to be, anything that's off a supermarket shelf will have been picked early so the, fl- the flavour development just not there.
0: And it won't and, and apples just uh, to clarify apples won't ripen after they're picked
1: oh they do yeah they do uh, red delicious is a good example uh, they're picked fairly green and they're they're an ap- apple that does develop good sugar levels there after as it as it as it's stored and those brown pears that we grow too that's another good one too you can eat them straight off the tree when we're picking them but if you want it a completely different, flavour, just put them on the sideboard for 10 days or a couple of weeks after you've picked them and then eat them when they've started to go a little bit softer and it's a, 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 a beautiful, smooth, mellow flesh that mm. you get rather than the apple type of flesh that you get when you pick them off the tree. Mm.
0: I suppose that's part of the customer's investment in eating quality fruit is understanding what their role is after they've bought it. But I think most people nowadays expect that whatever you buy at the supermarket, you should be able to just go home, cut it up and eat it. And if it's no good, you just let it go or you don't buy it again.
1: Well, if you, do, if you weren't told with those white flesh nectarines, you'd never buy another one again because you'd, they look magnificent when you buy them in the shop and you bring them home and you think, oh, I'm going to really enjoy them. And you can't even get your teeth into them. Mm. They have to, they've got to sit there for four or five days to develop the softness to, and the sugars to enjoy enjoy eating them.
0: Mm.
1: But what a ter- terrific product for the supermarket to handle. You could, you could throw that against the wall there when you buy them from the supermarket and play um, catchy with it for a while and you wouldn't do any damage to it. And, and, and when you see some of the supermarket um, workers handling their fruit, mm. It's terrible the way they do. Mm. Um,
0: well, it gets tumbled out of and banging yeah. against each other.
1: Yeah, but if you're buying it from the guy who's selling it at his shed door, he, you won't ever see him handling that fruit like that. No, no. Yeah, my father um, um, used to um, cart the fruit down to the docks for the um, to be loaded onto the ships, and he. he I often heard him telling me, and he told other people, the story there where he went down there. Uh, one of the first times he went down there with the fruit. And it, no containerisation. It was still the, the, the boxes were loaded onto the you know the, the, the big um, nets. Rope, rope the things nets, to be lifted and up. And then the derricks would lift them up and over, and they'd be then de-stacked in the hole there. When he pulled up at the docks there, the, the, a couple of the wharfies hopped on the back of the truck there and then picked up the boxes of apples and they threw them off the back of the truck there onto the ground. And, and Dad watched it a couple of times because the wharfies had a... Um, Iron was grip. A, yeah, but they had a reputation there that you couldn't argue with them. And um, you, it was fairly easy to precipitate a strike if you weren't careful. And he finally plucked up enough courage and he said to the guy who was throwing his boxes of apples onto the ground. He said, look, these things are not meant to be handled like that. They're, they're apples and they're meant to be passed from one pair of hands to another pair of hands. And he fully expected the wolfies to walk out on strike when when he pulled them up about it. But he said the guy was really good about it. He said, no one told us we you, you can't do this. He said, we, um, uh, we're happy to do it the way you want it done. Um, if um, someone had told us to do it that way, that's, a, that's what we would have done. So he came away with a good feeling about the wolfies after that.
0: And the last of the apples that you exported, as you say, you, you went in, they went into a container here. So you handled them, yeah. and then more or less they just went, were in a big container. So there's huge advantages to, the, to that type of transportation of food now.
1: Yeah, well, we the, the containers that we loaded um, when we were doing the export job here, um, yeah, they weren't they weren't even on pallets that were wheeled into the container. The container was act the pallets were forked up onto the back of the 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 pan and the cartons were individually stacked stacked mm. in the bottom of the container. But in a lot of cases, I think the fr- fruit was stacked properly on pallets and it was palletised in the container mm-hmm. uh, which is a sensible way of doing it.
0: Mm. Huge advantages now. Yeah. Because mm. I'd like to talk at some point about things like the innovation of plastic films that line the mm. fruit boxes now, you know, and they somehow absorb the ripening gases that are coming off apples and different types of fruit and they they help to retard that breakdown of the product.
1: Yeah, well, there's... Um, Um, It was there when I, the last few years that I was um, growing fruit. In my time, I suppose, we went through the controlled atmosphere Mm. introduction and that made a huge difference to the um, fruit. But I think it was, I was trying to think about it the other day. I think it was when we had the fire blight scare in Australia. I went down, there were a few meetings held down at Knoxfield in Melbourne as to what response we were going to take as an industry um, to those um, that outbreak in the Botanic Gardens, and I remember, and that was that was late in the year. I'm so I'm thinking, probably about this time of the year, when that um, fire blight issue was um, was detected, because it was at the end of it was at the end of a the apple traditional apple marketing season, and. Um, Although you'd still get um, um, apples coming out of controlled atmosphere at that time, a lot of guys would, would be trying to finish. I always tried to finish my apples um, before the cherry season started. I didn't like to be handling apples as well as cherries at the same time. Although I, 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 I do remember we did go one year into January there before we finished, our, finished all of our apples. But I remember at the conference that I went down to for the fire blight, someone brought out um, some of Montague's... um, um, They were royal galas, and put them on the table where we were and invited everyone to try them. And There was no talk about um, how they'd been treated, but they looked to be quite good apples. But Royal Gala around about Christmas time was uh, most unusual to be able to find Royal Galas, even out of controlled atmosphere, that were in good order. And uh, Rob Sinclair and I were sitting together there and we grabbed one of those apples and tried them. They were absolutely superb. Like, if you'd have said to us that they'd been picked the day before, we wouldn't have argued with it. And I, I suspect, because Montagues are always, have always been leaders in far as technology goes, I r- rather think that they were probably trialling what subsequently became known as Smart Fresh, yeah. and it was a gas that you put into the cool store that has a huge benefit in slowing the ripening process down, more so than the controlling of the atmosphere. Yeah. Uh, and I'd say they were trialling some of these and they'd brought them out there and brought them along to the conference to give to fruit growers to see what the response was. Mm. Uh, we weren't told that, but I, in hindsight, I suspect that's what they were doing.
0: I wonder if you could measure with the different types of fruit, the kind of the energy investment in, in that. You know, there's a huge energy in isolating different toll, manufacturing different types of gases and then the infrastructure to percolate it through the storage and the seals on the doors and everything in order to have an apple out of season or in order to have an apple from last year keep fresh until the apples are practically picked this year. Mm. And I wonder if we were aware of that kind of investment in energy. Of course, it's very innovative, we know that, but that investment in energy is huge instead of just eating a fruit that's in season and mm. allowing it to go out of season and eating something else.
1: Yeah. Well, I know in my case, um, it, became, it, it, it became a lot more commonplace there by the time I was getting out of the industry. But for the previous two or three years, I'd shied off using it. And I, I never used Smart Fresh. But I know that the quotation back then, and that's, I'm going back now 10 years probably, the quotation then for my small rooms was about $4,000 each room. You just set the container up in the room, seal the room up and push the button and the gas distributes itself around the room that way and does its job that way. So it wasn't it wasn't a cheap exercise. Mm,
0: then you have to get that back.
1: Yeah, um, but where you sat in the scheme of things as far as wanting the public to get a product like that. And in our industry, there's there's... Uh, a very marked divergent line between grower packers who want to put product before the public 52 weeks of the year and others who say, no, what we'd like is a finishing date so that the public has got no apples for two months, 10 weeks, something like that, mm. and start the new season off mm. with no uh, Carry without over. the public continually asking, is this last season's apples or this season's apple? Mm. Um, It's like cherries. Cherries can't be kept all year round. I guess that'll change. Um, We'll soon be able to see cherries 12 months of the year, I
0: suppose. Well, and they'll bring some in from America or more in from America and they'll develop varieties that are like bullets but look pretty.
1: Well, I haven't got a problem with um, um, counter-cyclical trade. Mm. But I've got an issue, I I think there's a huge benefit in having a break with our local stuff and having new season stuff which is clearly defined as new season's fruit. In saying that, in February and March, with some of these smart fresh apples that are still around from the last last year, I, I can't tell the difference, I really can't tell the difference between New seasons and last seasons. I've got to tell. I've got to tell you, if they've done the job properly with it, um, um, it does come out really good. Um, but I still, I'm still a believer in having um, fruit being sold on a seasonal basis.
0: That was the wow factor that that Peter Shamron talked about, particularly yeah. with cherries, that people go, wow, they're fresh, they're new season, because yeah. that's largely gone now.
1: Well, it it is, because there's always American cherries in now in July and August. Um, And um, um, if you want to pay $25 a kilo um, for them, um, that's fine. You can access good quality, and and they are, they do a really good job. They bring them in in, a jumbo jet, and they'll have been on the trees over in America there probably only two or three days beforehand, Mm. and we've got them here. in really good condition mm, yeah, i'm, I'm amazed sure. at how good they turn up some yeah. of them
0: i'm not sure what the jumbo jets doing for global warming though in order to have <laughs> jets <laughs> that's, j- <yeah>, j- <laughs> that's right mm. yeah when you you picked a thousand bins you said once of king Coles. how many acres did you have in production in apple production at the height of your of, of your orchard and, and when was that
1: Pro- probably um, probably um, about 80 80 acres, 75 acres was um, our biggest area at any time, um, and that had, that would produce about round about 60,000 bushels of apples per year. Mm. About three thousand, we talk in bins nowadays. Uh, that was about three thousand bins. Most the most we ever picked, I think we picked three thousand five hundred bins on one year. Mm. Um, that was a that was a really busy year in the 60s that was in 1972 if i remember correctly yeah.
0: mm. from picking and packing did when you talk about bushel bins did you do the packing here or event i know eventually they went into big bins and they went away elsewhere but you've got a big packing shed so i'm assuming you did all your own packing or some well, of it
1: well i can remember the days when it was still being done in bushel cases, so we handled bushel cases. When my father moved up here, half of the family stayed on the old the family farm in Doncaster. It would be one of the last orchards that was left in Doncaster. Um, But the packing shed and the cool store remained there for um, quite a long time after the last of the orchard um, disappeared. My father and his brother who ran the Doncaster side of the operation still used to work in together quite a lot so um, until we built um, more of our cool stores up here a lot of our fruit went down to Doncaster and was stored there and my uncle packed the fruit out as he saw fit. That side of the family had a growers stand in the Melbourne market and we would sometimes send packed fruit up here and we'd send it down to the growers stand in the uh, victoria market or in my time it moved to footscray road and i i started just as the market was moving into the footscray area and i got out just as that market was shutting down and moving out to um epping Epping. Epping. Epping now Yeah, yeah
0: which wasn't that long ago no rob in terms of your apple output here did, did do you feel are you aware that most of it went for export or was it domestic or was it a mix
1: yes we knew where we knew where most of the fruit went each year um, we would sometimes um, sell to speculators that came in that was mostly from the goldman valley or um, sometimes uh, there's a, a few there were a few big exporters that handled stuff um, out of Melbourne, through Melbourne. So, it, yes, it was probably either Melbourne or Shepparton where our export market used to be. Mm. We didn't have much input once it went to the exporters. They might tell us where they were sending it to. You didn't sell the fruit with a guarantee that it was going to a particular market. Mm. It was up to the <coughs> exporter where he sold yep. it. Yep. Yep. Uh, they'd, they'd come in, they'd offer you a case, uh, price per case, and you could either take it or leave it. Hmm. From our point of view, I only exported from my shed on a couple of occasions, and that was using either my uncle's export license or one of the and exporters license, and I was packing under their license. It was an operation I would have liked to have seen grow and get bigger. There was a period of time when the Victorian Department of Agriculture was promoting balbury wodonga as an inland port and I was hoping that might take off and we could be doing export from our shed on a regular basis. Mm. But it, it just didn't seem to eventuate. Mm.
0: You, you invested in, an awful lot in that in that cool room and the cool sheds. You,
1: you did. And the red tape for sending fruit overseas from from this place was pretty involved. It was not easy to go through all the hoops that you had to before you had a container turn up at the place that was sealed and locked here and it wasn't open until it got overseas Mm. a lot of of red tape the fruit would be exported a number of times and it became prohibitively costly to get uh, an export inspector to come in while we were packing the fruit and then come in while we're loading the fruit onto a container Mm. Uh, it was just unfortunate. But the bigger exporters are doing that on a daily basis out of Shepparton. Mm. And they've got inspectors that are located in Shepparton. We didn't have that um, luxury here. I would have to get the inspector over from Shepparton or for a short period of time there was a guy doing it from Albury. But uh, it was an expensive operation. And that
0: and that's volume speaks for that.
1: Yes. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Is there a premium in the export market? Well, we took a chance um, there on the year when I did it. We had a, a guaranteed bottom line, which meant that it was we were able to do the operation successfully. Yeah. The carrot that was dangled there was that you know it might have made more than we'd anticipated. Mm. And mm. Uh, um, myself and uh, Rob Sinclair up at Stanley was the one who took the, the gamble on that one, and I packed the fruit for him. But look, we we probably did as well as we would have done on the local market, the domestic market. But it wasn't a, it wasn't a gold mine exercise. Uh, the 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 beauty of some of those jobs and if you're in it if you're intimately involved with um, that side of the operation, some markets have different requirements as far as what they want. You might have a market where see so the Japanese market would like a nice big apple where they can cut it up and they can share it around the table um, with the family. The Indonesian market wants a smaller apple and they eat, they, they'll eat an apple the same as we eat an apple here. So if you've got a crop there that, if you've got a heavy crop of fruit and the fruit's only going to be small, you would try and maybe look at seeing if you could find an export outlet for it. If you If you're getting all the information coming through from newsletters and publications on a weekly basis you'll see notes put out through those newsletters there and exporters looking for a line of small red delicious or something like that and you might be able to fulfill that order for him experience and a and a and a good knowledge of the whole operation is a big advantage
0: and a network of people and a that network you trust. of contacts mm, yep
1: mm. yep we were lucky we had Uh, Being a uh, a long-standing family from a traditional fruit-growing area in Doncaster, we came up here with a lot of contacts, Mm. uh, which we used over the years when we got up here. Mm. Uh, My grandfather established, along with two other fruit growers, a big cooperative in, in Doncaster called the Blue Moon Cooperative. And the shed's still got the Blue Moon logo on the outside of it up at Stanley. When that agency was offered up here, um, it, of course, it was offered to my father first it, um, it, it, because he had a uh, family tie up with the Blue Moon Cup. We had, um, I think, we had shares with them at, at that stage. Uh, but dad, dad wasn't interested in going around and, and you know, selling sprays or mm. fertilisers or doing that sort of work. But the guy who took it on up here did a did, did a very good job.
0: Rob, you talk about your the height of your production. I think you said it was seventy two. Yeah, 73. I reckon
1: that's a bit the, probably the biggest year we had. Yeah. yeah,
0: I know from talking to other orchardists around here that it really started to fall off particularly from 1967 owing to the Suez Canal crisis and a lot of the export being from Australia being caught in that predicament. And yeah. then Britain joined the common market in 1973 and obviously that had a big impact. So even if you weren't exporting other people were and they're market fell away. So there was a glut on the Australian domestic market. What do you know about that Suez canal crisis in 1967?
1: I don't really know a lot about it. I, um, I'm not sure whether we had um, fruit on the water. At, look, we possibly could have could have done. Um, my uncle was um, he had an export license and he was exporting regularly on a yearly basis. Um, so i'd imagine um, he he probably had fruit on the water at at that time, as I say, I was still a schoolboy then, and i did wasn't involved with that side of it but but um, there could well have been some of our fruit that was um, on the on the sh- on the ship uh, those ships at that time mm. um, but yeah, i can't help you out much there there certainly uh, as from my point of view, um, the, the, um, when England joined the common market, it had a dramatic effect on the fruit industry, particularly for the Tasmanians, but also for us on the mainland who exported fruit. And I, look, I could liken it to um, the way the, the tobacco industry collapsed around the Myrtleford area um, some years back. That, um, uh, and as i as we said before 1972 was probably uh, our biggest year and our production figures following that would would have reflected the decline a lot of that was due to the fact that most of our production were export varieties granny smiths and king cole and that would have that would have equated to more than 80% of our production. Mm. Well more than 80%, I'd say. So there was a transition period at that time when we lost the um, export outlet into varieties that suited the domestic market. And that doesn't happen overnight. You've got Mm. to plant varieties or you've got to rework trees over to the varieties that are going to sell domestically. And therefore, you're going to have quite a Quite a high between our peak production and what it, what it eventually ramped up to after that, and we never got to the to the same figures that we did in 1972. The the varieties that the markets were looking for weren't um, precocious, high high producing varieties per acre. Uh, they might have been high value um, varieties but we didn't get the same production figures that we did with Granny Smiths and King Cole. Um, And that really started a transition of um, crop rotation in the industry too. Um, When I started with our export varieties, we probably produced really about four, four or five main varieties and they never changed. Nowadays, um, there are varieties um, on supermarket shelves that um, are completely unfamiliar to me, as far, far as apples go. Um, the, um, some super and su- supermarket chains have now developed what they call club varieties. So a particular variety now might only be found in, in Coles or Woolworths supermarket, but not in both of the supermarkets. Mm. Um, and there is a royalty agreement now attached to those varieties, as there is with a lot of other fruits and vegetables that are grown now too. Mm. Um, and this the, this fact that you're always rotating your, your, your orchard now means that you don't probably ever get, get a, a large area that's all producing at its maximum at one time. Mm. Uh, There's always gonna be trees that are um, 20 years old and trees that are only two years old on most modern orchards.
0: Rob, what is your earliest memory of eating one of your apples
1: from your own orchard? Yeah, that's a good question. Earliest memories. I, I think I can answer that. On one of the old orchards, someone had Grafted a Golden Delicious onto a Granny Smith tree. So we had one tree of Golden Delicious out in the orchard, and I roughly knew where it was when I was a little schoolboy. And um, I used to, because it was all mixed up with the Granny Smiths, when they're before they get the golden colour, they're green like a Granny Smith. So it used not to be easy that easy for a a schoolboy to find that tree until I had marked it fairly carefully in the orchard but those Golden Delicious uh, were the first ones that I'd eaten and um, it was a long time before they were popular in the shops. But, gee they were a nice apple when all you'd been used to were the sour King Coles and Granny Smiths to have a, a really sweet apple like a like a Golden Delicious. Mm. One of the apples that uh, is a really good apple, and it's disappointing that you can't buy it easily in a supermarket now, and it was widely grown, was uh, Jonathan. Mm. And it's uh, now there's two or three apples that fall into the same category. They are excellent eating apples, terrific flavour, very distinctive flavour. And you just can't buy them now because the little fruit and veggie shops that used to specialise in fruit and have an intimate understanding of what the product was that they were selling to the customer has gone now. And the supermarkets control, the supermarkets basically control what we grow now um, insofar as you can't really, if if you're not selling to the supermarkets, you're really not commercially viable now.
0: You don't have alternate markets now.
1: No, not not the specialist markets uh, that we used to have. Um, so things like um, Jonathan, Gravenstein, which used to always be the first apple, and it, they weren't good keeping apples, and this is why the supermarkets didn't like them, and I think they shied away from them. But they had a place in the, in the maturity of the fruit when it's in season, and they were superb eating apples. And there's a, another one there called the... A five crown, mm. and that was very popular too in the older days. Uh, but uh, it wasn't; they weren't varieties that lent themselves to the supermarkets as far as ease of handling goes. Rob, what's what's
0: the future for your land and and the pears that are left? Uh,
1: look, I, I I don't think there's a um, a great future for them. I think when I I would imagine we'll we'll sell this property, but I think when when it gets sold, it's most unlikely that anyone's going to want to continue to manage a six hundred tree block of pears. Um, the pears are relatively easy to grow, but there's still quite a lot of work with with it, um, and uh, yeah, I, I don't think it's it would be that attractive to a potential buyer. I might be wrong, but um, yeah, I think uh, possibly in the fullness of time, this place will get cut up into small blocks and um, sold as ho- hobby farms. Mm. Perhaps um, I'm not sure. It'd be a terrific vineyard, mm. an ideal spot for um, growing grapes, I would think. Yeah, okay, but I so would it. think anyone who know—I don't know much about growing grapes, but I think mm. anyone who does would see a lot of potential here for yeah, that.
0: Really Thanks, Rob.
1: Yeah, no, that's fine.
0: Always good to talk.
1: Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah, I enjoy it. Yeah.
0: That's it for this episode of Unpeeled Press. Thank you for listening. My thanks also to Charles Sturt University for its support for the podcast's creation through their Community University Partnership Grants. My gratitude to Dr Serena Killam from CSU and Dr Nick Rose from Sustain Australia for their advice and help in getting this underway. And thank you as always to Jamie Kronborg for technical advice and great photos theme music by Avocado Junkie. And don't forget to enjoy a local piece of fruit in season. I'm Peter Kenyon. Goodbye.